Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We've got an international guest of sorts on today, um, David Broder, who's a professor at Syracuse University in Florence. That's Italy. I guess they got a little extension campus over there or something like that. And he's on here to talk about his book, uh, Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. And so, yeah, this is a book which is, you know, about how um, basically the new prime minister of Italy, Giorgia uh, Meloni, um, won the election in October 2022. And, you know, her roots basically in a, in a political movement that traces back exactly to the fascist period uh, under Mussolini. And so... Um, Basically, we're we're trying to suss out how her movement is shaped by that history, but also how it's it's changed and adapted to circumstance to become something different. Absolutely, it's it's really interesting discussion, and in the in the book is a really rich history that uh, makes great arguments about the state of play and the nature of uh, of Maloney and her party. And delves into what he calls post-fascism, post-fascists. And it's a very interesting discussion that I think also ties into a lot of broader discussions about uh, who is or isn't fascist, what fascism is or isn't uh, in contemporary politics on the right, whether it's Trump or whether it's uh, the right generally in these kind of faux populist uprisings um, and you know, governments uh, from Orban's Hungary to, uh, you know, Le Pen in, in France uh, to, you know, other kind of historical examples of uh, what some think uh, of as fascism. So, so it's, it's a great historical text that has a lot of conceptual clarity. And I think, I think you'll find it very interesting and relevant um, to international politics today. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, the, most interesting part of the discussion for me was how um, Maloney has just bog standard Reaganite welfare cutting policies um, yeah, and, yeah. and is re- relying mainly on a sort of anti-immigrant animus amongst a minority of the Italian population. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the interesting surprise is uh, not just the kind of standard liberal, neoliberal um, stance and the, and the making an icon out of not just the Pope, but of Reagan, but the way that her actual policies and even some of her rhetoric just accepts and assumes, uh, support for NATO, uh, even support for supplies and, and support of Ukraine and, and the Russian war. Uh, and, you know, this, this kind of, uh, standard neoliberal, uh, approach to economics and even foreign policy with the, uh, you know, anti-globalist rhetoric, the anti-immigrant, anti-queer, uh, traditional kind of, um, tendencies of, of the fascist right. So it's a, a very interesting thing to unpack. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we might as well get into it just as soon as I remind everyone that, um, this podcast is now sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine, my m- employer, um, world's greatest magazine, except no substitutes. So if you subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash left anchor at the $10 a month tier, you'll get a free digital subscription to the website 
as well as access to a discounted print subscription if you'd like it, as well as our bonus episodes. $5 a month will get you just the bonus episodes. Um, Otherwise, rate, review, send to your friends, and uh, we appreciate uh, all the listeners. So anyway, yeah, without wasting any more time, let's get to our interview with David Broder right now. So, David, thanks for coming on the program. Um, I think maybe the best way to start the conversation is just to review like the recent political news in um, Italy, uh, you know, specifically the election of, I believe, October of last year. You know, who won? And, you know, give us a, a brief, we'll get into the history, of course, later, but like, like what is basically the state of play in Italian politics? Because I, I would expect that, that some listeners may not have been paying the most rapt attention. Uh, that probably includes me. You know, I read the headlines, but that's just about it. I'm not, no Italian expert for sure. Um, but yeah, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so <clears throat> unlike uh, the US, uh, Italy has loads of parties represented in parliament. Uh, and not just two. Um, but there's a coalition of right wing parties, um, that have been, um, more or less in alliance for the last 30 years. Uh, and they won the election last September, formed a government, and now they've been in power for six months. Um, the difference compared to past times, we saw the same right wing coalition in power. Um, the previous times was always under the, the leadership of Silvio Berlusconi. So obviously, uh, a right-wing leader often compared to, to Donald Trump or even seen as a precursor to him. Uh, the difference this time is that we have uh, Prime Minister Giorgia Melani, uh, who's from the most right-wing party in this coalition uh, called Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy, which uh, though it was formed only 10 years ago, um, has roots going right back to the fascist period. So often people say that this is the most right-wing government since World War II, and indeed it's the first one led by a party which are the kind of organizational uh, continuators of historical fascism. So, you know, they've changed in lots of ways. They're not about to establish a dictatorship, but they also draw on lots of fascist ideas, uh, ways of talking about the past, identity politics, um, so-called uh, fight against the ethnic substitution of Italians and so on. Um, so after uh, years in which we've seen a lot of technocratic governments in Italy, ones led by central bankers and grand coalitions and so on, uh, this government has a much harder political edge uh, and uh, indeed one on the, uh, on the hard and, and far right. Great. Yeah. So with that, you know, sort of groundwork, can we can we get into the history then? You know, it's like like you explain. I mean, it's very complicated, so we probably don't have to you know well, get into it. Can I first let me let me just sure. add to the contemporary scene just for with one point because I, you note that, and we'll get in this. The history will obviously explain this as well, but you note that the overall gain by the right was only one hundred and fifty thousand votes or so mm-hmm. from the previous four years. So what's new isn't that the right wing writ large has has grown tremendous power. Uh, so maybe can, can you talk about that just for a moment, and then maybe we'll we'll dive into the history. Yeah, definitely. So. Um, I think it's easy to have this kind of um, preconception, which is like left behind working class voters disappointed with the left suddenly swing behind these like right wing populist alternatives. And what I try and show in the book and actually I talked about but in my previous book as well, uh, first they took Rome, is that that's a bit of an optical illusion. 
really what's happening is that the overall uh, electoral turnout and participation in democracy in Italy is falling quite sharply. Um, up to the end of the 1980s, Italy had almost a hundred percent electoral turnout, like regularly above 90%, even in like regional and local elections. Uh, this election last September, uh, we saw only 64% participate. So that mightn't sound so low, of course, because in the US, it's probably similar in Britain and France and so on too. But the, the thing is the change that Italy used to be a very politicized society with big mass parties, you know, had the biggest communist party in the West and so on, big Christian Democrat party. Um, whereas now we're seeing particularly uh, young people, working class voters and Southerners are voting ever less. So those groups aren't necessarily entirely aligned to the left, far from it. But really, we've seen that the, the left's electoral base has kind of waned and split. Uh, there's lots of good reasons for that, including that Italy has had three decades of uh, not only poor economic growth, but actually no economic growth, uh, has the uh, only country in the EU which has had wages uh, lower than in the early 1990s, even in absolute terms. Uh, and, and the sort of center left has often been the, um, champion of the reforms and the kind of neoliberal dogmas, uh, and a certain kind of smug institutional rhetoric about, you know, we need to modernize and catch up. Um, and that's produced very poor results. So the left or the center left has alienated a lot of its own social base. There's also a lot of volatility on the right wing of uh, Italian politics. So this big movement of votes between the right wing parties. So Meloni is leader of this party, Fratelli d'Italia, a lot, which only got 4% in the 2018 general election and in 2022 got 26%. So most of its new votes actually came from other right wing parties, uh, rather than, uh, you know, abstainers or former left wing voters and so on. So the, the kind of citizens links to parties are very weak, uh, or very uh, sort of febrile and volatile, let's say. Uh, but on the right, the, the, the actual electoral turnout, the sort of perhaps more middle class and older electorate, uh, has stayed more, you know, is more, is continuing to turn out at a higher rate. So the right has sort of gained an, uh, almost a kind of inbuilt, uh, advantage, uh, ju- from that, uh, from that development. Right. So yeah, on the, on the history question, you know, can, can you give us a brief sketch of the, the links here, you know, because you have, like the Mussolini dictatorship, the first fascist regime, um, starting in the early twenties, right, and then the Salo Republic, uh, like after forty three, I believe, right, and then you had the Movimento Sociale Italiano, probably pronouncing that wrong, um, and, and which was sort of like in the background for a long time, and then the Berlusconi, and now into the uh, you know Brothers of Italy party. So, like, mm-hmm. what are the linkages there? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's um, it's quite common to say, and I said it myself before, that um, Milani's party draws on or, or sort of is rooted in historical fascism, but they always seem a bit uncomfortable when it comes to talking about the regime or the dictatorship, the actual period of Mussolini's rule, uh, and they often sort of say like, "Well, that's all in the past; nothing to do with us." Uh, Milani, for example, was born in uh, 1976. Um, so she always says, well, I'm too young. You know, that's before I was even born. But in 1992, Giorgio Meloni joined a party called the MSI. You mentioned Movimento Sociale Italiano. And the MSI was a party created in 1946, 
uh, by fascists, people who'd served in the regime, served in the Solo Republic, had fought right till the end with Mussolini alongside Hitler, and who didn't want to give up the fight. Of course, lots of former fascists in Italy uh, changed their politics uh, or they kept their jobs in the state administration sort of overnight, just sort of ceasing to be fascists. Uh, but the, the men who founded the MSI were all veterans of Salo. Uh, they actually excluded from membership people who'd, as they saw it, uh, betrayed Mussolini earlier on. So they said, or their most famous leader, Giorgio Almirante, uh, often praised by Milani as her political hero, uh, they said, we want to create a party of fascists in a democracy. Uh, <laughs> fascism isn't just the regime. Fascism isn't just anti-Semitism or violence or any of these things. Uh, it's a tradition of ideas. It's a political community, uh, which we uh, continue to uphold, even in the post-war republic. So this party didn't make much headway in the sense that uh, it never made an international government. In 1960, uh, the dominant party of post-war Italy, the Christian Democrats, uh, formed a government that did actually rely on the MSI's votes in parliament. And that produced a huge backlash, uh, general strikes, rioting, and that government was brought down in just a few months. And that's really the start also of the kind of post, post-war, really, let's say 1960s kind of mass mobilized left opens a period of great social conflict in Italy. So the MSI wanted to be this kind of bastion of anti-communist reaction. You know, they hoped that they would be able to do in Italy something a bit like Chile or Greece or Spain or Portugal, these sort of far right and American backed uh, dictatorships for lots of reasons that didn't happen. So alternative uh, reformist uh, plans and governments managed to uh, find a way through that. But the MSI was what its kind of strength was, I suppose you could say, is that it remained a sort of hard core of militants in Italian post-war democracy. Uh, one that always tried to legitimize itself more by seeking anti-communist allies, but also having a certain kind of rebellious, uh, movementist edge uh, among its base. Also, um, a lot of incubation of kind of um, neo-fascist terrorist plots, attempts to overthrow Italian democracy. Um, but in to go back to the way Milani thinks, you know, Milani who got involved in 1992 as a teenager, for her, she always talks about it as. You know, we were this oppressed minority in the anti-fascist Italy to be right wing was to be criminalized and marginalized. Of course, some would say they were criminalized uh, because, of course, some of their neo-fascist friends were planting bombs in train stations. But this idea that they were silenced and depressed, indeed, that there was some sort of communist hegemony uh, in post-war Italy, where, of course, there was a very large communist party, but never in government. Um, that really um, is central to the way that this party sees itself, that it has overcome this like long oppression. And now it's kind of turning the tables on the, uh, on the old anti-fascist uh, parties. Yeah. Um, so one thing I should, sorry, to, to continue, Go ahead. I mean, to keep the story going. I mean, so a big, the, the big kind of um, moment of change is very much the early 1990s. So the end of the cold war, the demise of the communist party, um, the corruption scandal that destroyed the Christian Democrats and socialists kind of throws the whole party system into this great upheaval. Uh, because the MSI hadn't been in government, so it wasn't really involved in the kind of corruption scandals and so on. Uh, there, uh, it, it sort of portrayed itself as, you know, we've always been honest. We've always been different. 
Uh, and when Berlusconi made his entry into politics in 1994 general election, he said, well, I'm going to build a new right-wing coalition and the MSI, well, they're welcome to be part of it. So he played a very important role in uh, legitimizing them, uh, in breaking down the barriers between the sort of um, n- the non-fascist right and then the right, which was indeed from the fascist tradition. So one thing I've spoken about in my articles and so on before is that this Italian case in the early 90s is actually a first uh, instance of something which we're seeing in a lot of Western countries now, which is the kind of collapse of any distinction between conservative forces and then ones rooted in um, World War II collaborationist and fascist parties. So if we look also at cases like, for example, Spain, where the Partido Popular and the sort of Francoite Vox party could easily be the next government, uh, or if we look at um, the European alliances being made uh, between different conservative forces, of course, if we look at the, uh, you know, the, the Republicans in the US have always had a certain uh, openness to, to these more extremist elements. So I think on the international right, we can really see uh, Fratelli d'Italia, Meloni's party, very much being legitimized and mainstreamed, even without it really abandoning its own past or breaking with its roots. Yeah. What's interesting, though, and, and you know, we can. There's so many ways into this um, because you, you mentioned Berlusconi is, is was seen as maybe a precursor to Trump. They're both very silly people with all these scandals, and they also embrace kind of uh, you know the business class. Uh, and, and yet, um, Maloney is also being compared to, to Trump or to other kind of uh, maybe faux populists. And, uh, and yet the, the Trump analogy doesn't hold in a certain way that's specific to the European context, right? And I, I think it's interesting to talk about some of these differences. Um, because, you know, you, you mean, you talk about the main axes on which, uh, she particularly relies. Uh, one of which, of course, is the heightening of conflict around identity and culture, gender, immigration, and so forth, uh, LGBTQ. But the other is a kind of reassuring about, uh, Italy's, uh, adherence to the EU institutions, to, uh, whether it's NATO or the Euro and so forth. And that might strike some as, as seemingly quite in tension with the kind of anti-globalist rhetoric, the anti-Semitism and some of the other populists. So can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think it's, that is indeed the striking, um, contradiction. Um, we think that even in, you know, even this party I mentioned, the MSI, which was created by heirs of the fascist regime, people who'd fought against the United States invasion of Italy right to the last in 45. And in 1951, they're already saying, uh, the majority of the party say we should support Italian NATO membership. So there is actually a long tradition of um, and, you know, of course, for them, that was probably, you know, psychologically traumatic. There were certainly elements in the party who had this kind of, we're a third way between, uh, Europe and, sorry, between them, um, sorry, between the United States and the Soviet Union, or uh, even some kind of Gaulist ideas of a kind of independent European way. Uh, but really the, 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 the crux of the matter is that Fratelli d'Italia accept Italy's role as a very junior ally of the United States. Right. It's not like historical Mussolini and fascism trying to make Italy a world power. Uh, they accept not only are they kind of obsessed with civilizational decline and the idea that you know, whites are being replaced by Africans and Arabs and so on by the George Soros uh, great replacement. 
Uh, but they actually kind of, in a way, they kind of accept that their position is already very weakened in terms of Italy's power, even to be a central uh, player in European politics. Um, I think that in, you know, they are a party that um, has a basically Reaganite vision of economics. Uh, so they're not like challenging the EU over, you know, like debt or the euro or something. And I think a lot of that discussion is overblown. Um, I mean, I read an article this week in um, the Washington Post, which said something like, well, um, Maloney's proven her critics wrong because, after all, they said that she was far right, but then she continues to support uh, NATO and Ukraine and the EU and so on. Uh, but I think, you know, that there's no necessary contradiction between those, between, you know, supporting those things, maintaining Italy's international position, which I think in any way would be almost impossible to change. Um, and then, uh, this domestic, um, political agenda, which is obsessed by, uh, the issue of, uh, Italians are not having children and immigrants are replacing us. So this week, uh, a minister in the government, who's also Meloni's brother-in-law said, you know, we should not surrender to ethnic substitution. Lots of people called on him to resign. Uh, of course, the reason why Milani couldn't have sacked him is that she said the same thing dozens of times herself. Uh, Fratelli d'Italia's politics is based on a kind of resentful, uh, identity politics of Italians are being oppressed. Um, at the same time, and they also look, the way they talk about fascist history is also governed by this principle. They don't celebrate fascist heroism. They complain that uh, Italians were massacred by Yugoslav partisans in 1945, without kind of mentioning the bit where fascist Italy invaded Yugoslavia. Um, so they have this vision where Italians are always being oppressed and, and subject to a kind of ethnic cleansing. Uh, they use this rhetoric, the idea of a cultural genocide of Italians. Uh, but as, as, as you said in the question, I mean, the, the kind of contradiction is that they allege this globalist plot, you know, Marxists, Soros, etc coming together to destroy Italian identity. But at the same time, what they really want is a kind of seat at the table in the international institutions. So I think there's a certain gap as well, of course, between the uh, rhetoric and the delivery. Uh, but I think mainly the differences between the uh, the game they're playing internationally and particularly trying to build up Milani as a kind of international stateswoman and then what other figures in the party, her ministers and so on, are doing in terms of uh, fueling the sort of identity war uh, at home. Yeah. Uh, there's also, yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, yeah, another aspect of this, the, the European question that, that is, that's, I was wondering and reading about in your book, and I, I think you have a pretty good, uh, read on it is the way in which like the European union membership has enabled the growth of far right, um, forces in, in Italy as being like, you know, at least nominally challenging these, uh, you know, supernatural, supranational institutions that have sort of run Italian governance for one way or another in many important ways. Um, you mentioned that there's been, I, I was just actually looking at this chart while doing a prep for the episode. Uh, yeah, zero growth, um, from 1999 to today. It's just a shocking, uh, uh, disa disaster. You know, I think the, the figure in the United States is like 25%. Um, and the, and, you know, 
for all the problems in the United States, I think that that inarguably has helped maintain more legitimacy for even our very flawed democracy. The fact that you still have, you know, average incomes going up by a bit, you know, like some people are getting raises like that tends to uh, deflate extremist politics a little bit. And then you just have the fact that like, this is this is the result of the economic policy of the like the eurozone, especially after 2008 and 2010 with the European debt crisis, which was just catastrophically bungled by these supposedly super genius technocrats. You know, uh, um, what's his name? The French guy whose name escapes me, uh, who was the head of the European Central Bank. Uh, yeah, Jean-Claude Trichet, and he was like raising interest rates in, in April 2011 when the unemployment rate in the Eurozone was like 12% or something. Um, you know, absolute madness. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, as you say, the, the, this, there's, this hasn't produced in the, in the right like any sort of challenge. But do you think that that, um, like that record of failure is enabling, you know, Maloney and, and people like her? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think yes, but the qualification I'd put on that is that I think um, often, and certainly as you may have guessed from my accent, I come from Britain. So there's this kind of, in British press, there's often this kind of idea like, well, we did Brexit, so who will be next to follow us? And of course, there are like no takers. But but there's this, uh, there's this kind of idea which is like um, the right wing is strong because of disaffection with the euro. I think that's true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those right-wing parties are actually advocating some sort of split right. with the euro or a way out. And I think actually really that's that would be impossible without uh, bankruptcy, which could be considered as a policy option, but uh, I think isn't going to happen. Uh, so, I mean, I think that the, 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 the connection is actually also very much um, a result of the fact that the the center left's commitment to the eurozone project and in particular um forcing all manner of austerity all manner of unpopular decisions in the name of commitment to the eurozone project and very much within a kind of language of you know we need this external bind we need to make these sacrifices uh in order to sort of bring italy up to task up to the level of better modern economies like Germany and so on, uh, that this has alienated a lot of the left's base, uh, did an, had an important role in feeding the rise of the five-star movement, which is a much more eclectic uh, populist force, and that that weakening of the centre-left's own connect, like connection to its own base, its failure to defend incomes and wages and public services, has pitched the whole political spectrum to the right in the sense that it's become easier for the right to win. Uh, even without um, actually directly winning over left-wing voters. Um, but I think a- another aspect of, of the problem is that um, the euro has had the effect of greatly reducing uh, public investment in Italy. We've had you know, basically permanent austerity for three decades. Um, but a certain kind of uh, business and even their employers, if we think of like small export firms, you know, they might suffer cost pressure as a result. But you know, they don't want to tumble out of the euro. What they want is like tax cuts to ease the pressure on them. So there's a certain kind of right wing response to the uh, limits of the euro. You know, the, the, the overall economy can be uh, stagnant or weak. You know, productivity can continue to fall. Italy can continue to be a, a land of a few 
a handful of big businesses and a huge amount of small ones. Uh, but there can be a kind of right-wing electoral offer that transfers resources away from the state and towards uh, either clients of the ruling parties or just towards their electoral base in terms of tax, cut, tax cuts and so on. Um, so actually, I think one thing we see in Fratelli d'Italia, and I wrote an article about its uh, sort of budget plans this week, is it kind of has this whole rhetoric of like, um, it, Italians are going extinct. We're not having kids anymore because we have no faith in the future. And then their recipe to deal with that is like tax cuts for families who have lots of children. <laughs> so, so the thing is, what they're actually doing is, well, indeed, what they actually propose to do is to uh, give tax cuts to people so they have lots of kids while also hollowing out the Italian uh, state and its public services even more. Um, so often they're called welfare chauvinists in the sense, you know, the, the phrase means welfare, but only for nationals or only for nuclear families. But I would challenge this reading in the sense that they're not even welfareist. In fact, what they propose to do is just put cash back in the pockets of families with lots of children. Um, so I think that they, uh, in a way, they, they do offer a very short term remedy to some of the failing, failings of the Italian, uh, growth model under the euro. You know, they can benefit some of their own electorate by, by giving them tax relief. Uh, but it's an extremely short termist perspective and, uh, I think is very unlikely to, uh, successfully, uh, turn around the uh, Italian economy as a whole. Well, and that's the thing. Not not only will it not do much for the economy, but it's confusing to me from a strategic perspective of growing your voter base. Uh, and maybe it's because of the structural limits economically. I don't know. You tell me. But th there's only so much that tax cuts can do. You know, tax cuts are not famously known for helping people without money, <laughs> right? Like mm -hmm. that—that that is just not taking more of it from you in a way. But uh, we, Ryan and I, talked when Trump came on the scene early on how dangerous it could be if he truly was heterodox and started doing some statist things, mm -hmm. which were, which would be indeed, uh, welfare chauvinist, right? To, to, to do like a, a, a white nationalist kind of welfare state type deal. And that seemed like a huge danger and opportunity for a, a far right, um, leader. I don't, can you help explain why that is not taken advantage of because of the way that it, ways that it could appeal to people who would benefit from the state intervening economically on their behalf and, and playing. I mean, it seems like an obvious thing. Use the racism and the, and the anti-queer and the, all, all these cultural identity politics, uh, flashpoints coupled with material benefits. And, and yet they still keep the neoliberal, uh, philosophy. What, what's the deal there? Do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, so one thing that the, um, one of the, actually, one of the biggest things that the current government has done so far, and, uh, it tends to be kind of overlooked because it doesn't really, it doesn't like necessarily link up with the, the idea of violent destabilization and so on. But the, the most important single policy thing the government has done so far is to, uh, abolish the, uh, unemployment benefits that were introduced in 2019. Um, and Fratelli d'Italia has always prided itself on um, you know, we're a party that supports hard work, not laying around on the sofa. Uh, there's a kind of insinuation that the unemployment benefits are sort of inherently corrupt and are sort of buying votes by the Five Star Movement, the party that introduced them. Uh, similar, very similar unemployment schemes exist in 
uh, all West European countries. Uh, in fact, these are a, um, you know, they're conditional on job seeking and so on. You can't just claim it. You know, a, a very large minority of the claimants actually do have jobs, but earn very little. Um, so, and Fratelli d'Italia is also the only party in Italy that has consistently opposed a, a minimum wage. Italy is one of the only European uh, countries uh, which doesn't have a minimum wage. Uh, most of the others that don't do it beca- uh, because they have other kind of collective bargaining, uh, which acts as an alternative. So uh, while uh, f- because of the name of its predecessor, the Italian social movement, uh, and a certain current of thought within it, Fratelli d'Italia often say, we're the social right. We've always been closest to the workers, uh, to the poor, and so on. Um, but in policy terms, they simply aren't. And I mean, since the Berlusconi governments in the 1990s, in which they were relatively junior partners, they more or less dropped all of that. If you take someone like Giorgia Milani, who kind of grew up politically in the 90s or 2000s, there's no element in anything she says which would, uh, which would appear to, 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 uh, uphold even a kind of welfare chauvinism, much less even than parties like the Front National in, in France. So I think part of the reason there is that they are, you know, they have become the dominant force in the broad right wing coalition. Um, you know, they held a conference in Milan last May, uh, which was interesting because it was, it was, you know, it's the big financial capital of Italy and the kind of advertising, you know, we're the party of business of Italians who want to get on as against the, uh, the, the, the kind of, um, um, this kind of, as against all sorts of threats, as against environmentalism and red tape and the sort of bureaucracy and so on. But Milani very explicitly cited Reagan as her inspiration. So there's some sort of critique of like globalism destroying our identity. But then the answer is a kind of, is to boost national capitalism by doing things like tax cuts, getting rid of environmental uh, legislation, and so on. It's actually quite similar to the project of uh, Orban in Hungary, in the sense that while it's often called as a pro-worker conservatism, the way it favours national workers is to lower labour costs to allow Hungary to better compete with uh, as a destination for like German um, you know, car companies and so on. Uh, I think it's actually harder to pull that off in Italy also because unlike Hungary uh, Italy of course has the euro um but that's pretty much what they they're doing uh and it's accompanied with a certain kind of culture war which is very uh, I wrote an article for the nation about this so under this government you know for example this government renamed the ministry of economic development to the ministry of uh business and of uh, italian made products they actually use an Ita- uh, english language phrase made in italy uh, and they renamed the uh, education department, the Department of Education and Merit. And they have this big focus on meritocracy, on hard work, on not expecting handouts. So I think that, um, you know, one, one of the things that really um, marks out this party is a kind of obsessive anti-communism. And we can kind of see like, you know, for example, describing the unemployment benefits as kind of like Venezuela and, and this kind of thing. So on the one hand, you might think, well, it's a kind of um, hysterical and senseless, you know, the constant determination to paint even liberals or mild social democrat measures as communist. But I think it kind of does somehow fit together that they actually do see like 
immigrants coming and taking benefits or like the, the workless who live off the state and so on. They actually do see this in very much in the language of like the proletariat, like literally like those who do nothing but breed. So their politics is about the, the problem is the wrong people are having kids. Yeah. Like, and that's the great, great replacement theory, right? That's, that's, yeah. that's the connection. Yeah. So I think actually in their way of think, seeing things, it's not just a imaginary opponent. Like they really do see themselves as fighting a, a civilizational battle in order to defend like the hardworking, like normal, natural Italian family against this like mix of immigrants and scroungers and queers and all of the things they hate. So, I mean, one of the interesting expressions of this was that while they call for, you know, uh, you know they say there's this risk of Italians going extinct, uh, they're also saying like, well, we don't want gay couples adopting because that's not the right kind of family. So, so they're, they're very much, um, impose, imposing both this like language of like, we need more births, but they're also very clear that yeah, and they're making very clear basically their idea of keeping up the population is also very selective about who that population uh, should be. What do you um, suppose is uh, behind this collapsing birth rate? Because uh, last time I checked, I think the the birth rate in Italy is estimated like one point two, one point three, something like that, and that is quite low. Um, and there and there has been, you know, as we've been talking about this, this, uh, you know. 20 years of terrible economic performance that presumably would make it somewhat more difficult to like have kids. Um, and especially, you know, like it was somewhat tattered welfare state compared to, you know, the European average, even if it's probably a lot better than the U S I would guess. Um, but you know, we also see that birth rates are quite low in a lot of other countries that do have super generous welfare states. Um, and it's quite, you know, like there's a large cultural element to that sort of decision, um, it seems to be like just becoming much more difficult to get married, you know, for all kinds of reasons. Um, you know, do, do you have a sort of, uh, a stab at an explanation for, for, for why it's fallen so far? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, it's a combination of, of factors and some of which are, are, um, you know, obviously some of, some of the factors are to do with just kind of cultural change in the sense of people not wanting to, uh, have kids, of course. And of course, it's generally true that the wealthier societies, uh, birth rates fall. But I mean, there's also lots of, um, there's lots of, uh, barriers to people having kids, which, you know, do indeed exist. So for example, um, one thing I talk about in my previous book is a, a very large majority of Italians in their twenties and early thirties still live with their parents. And so it's kind of easy to think of this as a kind of eternal fact, like, oh, yeah, the Catholic family who will live in the same house. But the thing is, is that the trend towards that, you know, th that became less common throughout the second half of the 20th century than the last, like, 20 years is becoming more common again because people are having to rely on the family for welfare. Uh, you know, they're having to rely on, like, their parents or having to stay with their parents, can't afford to move out. Um, there's no... You know, for example, in Britain, we have, uh, if, you know, in Britain, there are housing benefits for, uh, unemployed people who are renting. Of course, that doesn't help out everyone, but it exists somewhat. Whereas in Italy, that doesn't exist uh, at all. And it's uh, famously it? awkward to have kids, uh, with your parents listening in the next room. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> just, well, yeah, less, less, less romantic, uh, a context, I think. <laughs> 
Sure. And then, you know, of course, there's also lots of things to do with like, not only is there no minimum wage, but there's a strong culture of um, the idea that basically, I know you see in lots of fields, which is kind of like, well, because young people live with their parents anyway, do they really even need to be paid for their work? So you have this kind of normalization of like, um, you know, it being impossible to get, uh, you know, not only is it impossible to get like grants to study and so on, but you know, this, this kind of like endless, um, um, what do you call it? Uh, into endless, like unpaid internships or like hyper low, uh, wages. Uh, but then really the other very important factor is the, uh, lack of, uh, free or even subsidized childcare. So there are lots of things that make it very expensive to have kids and which this government isn't going to do anything about because what it really wants to do is exhort people to have children, give them tax cuts if they do have more than two children, uh, and also make abortion access a bit harder, uh, introduce more kind of elements of you know, consultation with doctor and so on. Um, but I mean, I think the, um, the, the thing is, is that um, in some ways, Italy's unemployment figures mightn't look that drastically bad. But I think the thing to really look at is the employment rate, the number of people who actually have jobs. So only 60% of working age Italians have jobs, which is equal with Greece, the very lowest in Europe. So there's lots of ways of kind of massaging the figures, put, you know, people who don't even seek work, uh, people who are full-time carers, of course, lots of people who might want to have children are also busy looking after elderly relatives and so on so there's lots of ways in which it's uh, hard for uh, people to have kids uh, hard for people who want to have careers or have kids to to even stay in italy rather than emigrate and emigration is on the up as well uh but yeah i mean i think there's lots of uh there's lots of factors but i think i think that the when the government identifies that people's lack of faith in the economic future is putting them off having kids well, I'm sure, you know, to some extent that that's true. I'm, however, very skeptical about, uh, the, well, A, I'm very skeptical about whether they have any solutions that will make it easier. Uh, and B, I mean, I think the, the point, uh, the, or the desirable outcome would be to give people the, the opportunity to choose rather than push this idea that, well, the role of Italians is to keep the Italian ethnicity so-called going and therefore women's role is to be mothers. I think that's the that's the problem, and that's why a lot of uh, people object to this uh, framing of the issue. Yeah, so so just to to clarify what you were saying there a minute ago, in case listeners might be confused, so we we have a relatively low unemployment rate, what like eight percent or something like that. Um, uh, but a, a, a that counts the 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 people who don't have a job uh, who are actively looking for one. And so if the employment rate is super low, that means there's a large proportion of people who are dropped out of the workforce entirely. Um, and so the, un- the employment rate, the fraction of people with a job, you know, prime age workers from age 25 to 54 in the United States is like 78%, I think. Um, that's not even that high. I think in, in Sweden or Norway, it's like 86%, 87% in the Faroe Islands. I think the highest in Europe, that's 89%. Um, so yeah, you know, you, you, uh, pretty, pretty like that's to where you're, if you're like a able-bodied person walking down the street without a job, you're liable to be like press ganged into a fishing boat, you know, for work, <laughs> the businesses are so desperate for workers. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you, you talk in the book, um, about, you know, like 
the post-fascist, I believe you call it, the sort of Maloney um, uh, representing a movement that is descended from from fascist roots, but is clearly distinct. Um, So could you go through, you know, the aside from the most obvious thing, which is that it's led by a woman that is definitely not traditional fascism. But what else distinguishes it from your sort of classical fascist uh, architecture? Well, I think that the part of the reason I wrote the book is that obviously with Trump, uh, Bolsonaro, uh, Le Pen, uh, some people would even say with Brexit and so on, uh, there's this kind of revived idea of like, well, are these new nationalist or ethno-nationalist movements, um, are they something to do with fascism, even though they don't claim to be? Right? Is there this sort of return of the past? And I think that the discussion often gets very bogged down in this idea of like whether we're actually seeing the return of the political forms, like the, the ways of mobilizing that were typical of the 1930s. Um, so things like militias, uh, the open celebration of political violence, um, the, the fact of this kind of revolutionary tension, this rise in like mass politics, uh, because of course we can, you know, even though of course there are many violent, um, groups and cases, um, overall we'd have to say that compared to a hundred years ago, like the level of political violence across you know, most of the countries I mentioned uh, is much less. You know, we don't have the experience of, you know, millions of people who'd just been involved in World War One. We don't have parties with like militias fighting in the streets or not not so much. Uh and the the kind of that moment of the nineteen twenties when like, you know, states were allowing everyone to vote for the first time and when there were communist parties on the rise, all of those factors have kind of gone. But so I, I think the Italian case, uh, though, is interesting precisely because there's a party which has actually kept going the whole time. So through the political culture, through the actual same individual people claiming to be doing the same thing, if we follow their careers over the last 75 years since World War II, uh, we can actually see them somehow embody these changes, right? So after World War II, the MSI, as I said earlier, it became this party of like who called themselves fascists in a democracy. So they somehow accepted that they needed to take part in electoral politics. They were quite a small force. Certainly some elements of that party and of its offshoots did resort to armed struggle. Uh, terrorism uh, did try and um, overthrow democracy or force a sort of Chile uh, or Greece type situation where you know, you'd drive social tension to the point where it would be able to form a dictatorship. Um, but if we look at someone like, and you know, many of the leaders of Fratelli d'Italia today are veterans of that period, of the so-called years of lead, so basically the 1970s in Italy, where many hundreds of people were killed in uh, political violence, uh, and in particular by neo-fascist terrorists. If we look, though, at someone like Giorgia Milani, you know, she entered politics in 1992, uh, in the MSI, in this old neo-fascist party. But she also did so at a time when the Cold War was over. Italy uh, was joining the European Union, which was becoming much more integrated. Um, there was much talk of the kind of end of history and so on. And you know, Berlusconi brought the MSI into his government, basically saying, well, uh, you know, the MSI aren't so bad, so extreme. And they were kind of welcomed into the institutions. And so... Rather than see Milani's uh, victory as this kind of 
sudden upsurge of the past of, you know, fascism is back in its homeland. I think it's uh, better to read it uh, in terms of the changes it actually has undergone. You know, Fratelli d'Italia is a party that hybridizes, that combines some fascist ideas and reference points, like the idea that the state should organize the ethnic homogeneity of the population, uh, a certain vision of the fascist past, the idea that fascists fought to save Italy from communism, this kind of thing. Um, but they mix that with basic acceptance of the electoral and constitutional avenues of politics. They certainly have allies who are more militant and so on. Uh, but so I think it's the, the important thing really is to understand that on the one hand, it's a continuation of fascism. It's, you know, its leaders venerate and probably in their hearts uh, still admire their ancestors. Uh, but they've also changed the way they do politics. Milani has taken power, not in a country on the brink of Bolshevik revolution, which he's stopping, uh, but rather in a desertified democracy in which the left uh, has basically crumbled. Uh, so I think it has a family, you know, the book is called Mussolini's Grandchildren, not Mussolini's clone, right? They have a family resemblance, a genealogy. They are an evolution of historical fascist ideas and politics, but the world around them has changed a great deal. So I, I'm trying to capture the kind of tension uh, between uh, those two things. Uh, as for the comparison, you know, with, with Trump and so on, I mentioned at the start, I mean, I think that they have converged with so-called normal and non-fascist conservatives uh, with certain kind of new forms of identity politics, basically fixated with the idea of like Western decline. Uh, so I think a, a good example is great replacement theory. Great replacement theory coined by uh, uh, Renaud Camus, the French conspiracy theorist, uh, isn't an idea, you know, the idea that Marxists and financiers and globalists and progressives and so on are all conspiring to destroy the white race by importing immigrants. You know, that has predecessors like uh, Jean Respai's novel, The Camp of the Saints. Um, but it doesn't come from a Mussolinian or specifically fascist tradition. But it's a kind of talking point and a way of seeing the world that can combine uh, right-wingers from other political traditions, uh, including, of course, anti-communist right-wingers in, in former Eastern Bloc countries, uh, people like Trump, uh, Steve Bannon, and so on, and then someone like Milani. The, 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 the obsession with conspiracy, uh, ethnic and civilizational decline, and Marxist threat you know, they can recompose, the right can reunite around these ideas, which don't just come from the past, but, but certainly kind of echo, uh, echo them in important ways. It's very helpful uh, in the book and, and just now, David. I, I really like the term post-fascist um, because of how it maintains that lineage, that genealogy that you talk about. But I think it's also important to understand that you, you know, when you say that the fascism is still alive in spirit in a way, um, Fascism was always opportunistic and uh, never rigid in how it sought power, right? And it, and in, insofar as uh, the contemporary fascist spirit is not, as you say, about uh, going back to the past so much or returning to the past, but is more concerned with the future. Uh, fascism was always kind of in a way about the future, right? And creating a new kind of future and maybe uh, myth making about a, a past that never existed and so forth. Um, and I, I think too, we talk about fascism so often in, in 
you know, you, you mentioned family resemblances made me think of Wittgenstein and, uh, you know, different contexts, different use of the same term. Sometimes people mean just the interwar period. And so if, if it's not specifically the conditions that gave rise to this thing that happened in the interwar period, then that can't be fascism. And then others use it in much this more broad movement sense or spirit sense. Um, and I think you've done a great way to show how we have to think through both of those ways. And, and specifically for the left, though, what we when we talk about these things, I think part politically, we're trying to understand what are the dangers that are, that are new and different, uh, or maybe more dangerous now because of this, uh, appropriation of language, uh, even though it's still, you know, liberal and, and capitalist and, and, and maybe traditional neoliberal, neoconservative ways. What's, what's new that we should be worried about or what, new ways of combating it do we need to think of? Is it useful to think about anti-fascism versus fascism and how we respond to, to the dangers, whether it's in Italy or in France or in Hungary? Like, What about this history that you've studied could help us think about both the, the, the framing in terms of language and, and conceptual analysis, but then the praxis of, of fighting against these reactionary forces? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think... Um Often, um, when, you know, I've, uh, been sort of, um, when my work has been like covered within Italy itself, like, you know, I wrote this article for the New York Times last July that caused a big fuss in Italy because it was as if, uh, it was very much painted as if like the house organ of the Democrats, i.e. the Biden administration has chosen to label Milani as like fascist associated. Why are they interfering in our election? It's amazing. You you were speaking for the whole country at that point, apparently. That was yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this, uh, yeah. So it was as if the State Department had rung me up and said, you know, give us your best. So, um, so I think like there's a certain um, way in which the um, the Italian right and the parties like Fratelli d'Italia actually like to evoke the idea that. Their enemies are accusing them of instituting a fascist regime. And well, what an absurd idea. Of course, they're not going to, but this is just alarmist nonsense. So actually, I think that the thing is my book isn't alarmist. It's not saying that there's this sudden breakthrough. It's a process indeed, which as I uh, sort of hinted in an earlier answer, there's been a kind of 30 year process in Italy where the broad right has carried through this kind of recomposition where like, you know, neo-fascists are welcome in a, in a, in a broad right wing, uh, block. Also in a situation where democracy in general is kind of hollowed out. You know, as I said before, you know, in 1960, already there was an attempt to bring the MSI into government and it failed because there was a huge mobilization against it. Whereas now the problem is that, uh, there isn't a big mobilization. So I'm not saying necessarily that anti-fascism per se is like the best way to mobilize people for the left to appeal to its own base. I think there's a problem with um, a certain kind of last minute election time anti-fascism, which purely, purely cynically tries to, to whip up a, a sense of threat. But that said, I mean, I also think that there are values of the anti-fascist resistance and of the past that are very important to informing uh, politics today and in combating the kind of uh, narrative of Italian identity, which is pushed by the right wing. And, you know, I, I saw, I, saw um, I won't mention the specific person, but like, I, I see this kind of uh, people who think they're very smart by saying like, oh, well, the left needs to stop talking about the past and singing Bella Ciao. And instead, let's talk about the future. 
And it's like, well, that's great. But the problem is, is if you have the ministers and the government saying, well, we need to resist the ethnic substitution of our nation organized by George Soros. Or if they say, well, in World War II, sure, fascism went along with Nazi Germany. That was bad. But what about the communist crimes? Then you, you can't really just choose to uh, not answer that. And in fact, that is the approach of not answering and of capitulating to those ideas is what kind of liberal centrists have been doing for, for years. Uh, so I think it is uh, indeed um, important to fight also those fronts, but it's only part of the broader uh, issue of how can the left reconnect with its social base or indeed appeal to new parts of the working class or new precarious or unemployed groups uh, and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the problem is, is that the, the, uh, it's, it's, um, it's true, of course, that it's, uh, easy for the left to sort of fall into accusing its right wing opponents of being on a slippery slope towards fascist authoritarianism. Uh, and of course, it's a very well-worn theme. Uh, I'm not saying that that's what's happening. I think it's different to the past. And I think what's, uh, I think it could include things though, for example, like a, uh, I, well, to give an example of how it's, uh, new and dangerous in a different way is that when talking about the past, Italian history and so on, not just World War II, but also about the 1970s violence and so on, what Fratelli d'Italia do is they don't celebrate, you know, Mussolini who wanted to build a new Roman Empire or the people who wanted to turn Italy into Chile by, you know, carrying out terrorist attacks. What they do is they talk about their own victims, you know, the Italians who were killed by Yugoslav partisans. And, you know, some of the cases of victimhood are very bad. You know, some of them involve sexual violence, civilians being killed, this kind of thing. But what they're doing is they're turning the uh, version of Italian history, not into, isn't it good that the anti-fascists won and the resistance won, but rather, let's commemorate all of the victims. So they use this victim narrative and this idea of the, like, the integrity of the individual human person to then push, and indeed the, the language of uh, offence and, uh, oh, you know, the left is glorying in people's suffering, to then push these kind of ideas like, well, actually, um, uh, to deny our version of history is like, uh, is revisionism akin to Holocaust denial and that should therefore be banned or criminalized? Uh, Fratelli d'Italia, uh, pushed a bill, uh, in 2021, which didn't succeed, but to, um, criminalize apologia for communism or to change the existing part of the penal code on Holocaust denial. So it would also ban, uh, 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 a, anything other than their own version of like the Yugoslav partisans claiming they carried out ethnic cleansing against Italians. So I think that they're using kind of modern identity politics in order to justify and defend like their old cause in a new way. So of course it could be said this is all just about history, but I think it's not. I think it's about national identity. And the thing is really, this is, this is the stuff of headline news in Italy, like week in, week out. I mean, it's the, the argument of, you know, it's very easy for, you know, Italians to say, oh, well, you know, obviously I'm a British historian who's got a book to sell. So I want to talk about fascism, but it really is still the stuff of the contemporary culture war. Yeah. I mean, it just real quick that this is such a parallel, isn't it? To the, the grievance politics, say in the United States, which allows for, um, 
you know, whether it's the critical race theory attacks on, on studying our history of slavery and Jim Crow and, and, and the denial of, um, of the actual past violence in history, uh, as a kind of way to say that, that those who bring this up are attacking our patriotism, our nationalism, our identity as Americans. And, and it's, it's in the same like just like with Maloney, Trump is also at the same time saying I'm the least racist person that exists, right? So, so mm-hmm. he has these like liberal bromides that seem to like say no, 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 I'm not racist. Uh, at the same time, we can't study our history. At the same time, you know, DeSantis is uh, obviously uh, attacking trans people and doing all these things in the name of grievance politics, in the name of th- this broad left. These Marxist liberals are all conflated. Are attacking the traditional nationalist, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hard working man, right? This seems a striking parallel. Yeah. I mean, uh, one thing I, I cite in the book is the, um, when they had the, the, this, uh, conference, uh, under Maloney's leadership in, in uh, Trieste in 2017, they kind of issued this big kind of historical document explaining how their fight for identity is rooted in, in Italian tradition. So it kind of whitewashes Italian 20th century history basically by saying, oh, well, Italians were the victims of Nazis and communists, but kind of ignoring what Italian fascism did. Um, but they also have this idea, which is like, well, we are the victims of a cultural genocide. You know, the attempt to destroy Italian identity. And, you know, of course, like, what does a cultural genocide even mean? Of course, you could say it in, you know, you point to contemporary examples of, of, you know, people's being forcibly stripped of their identity and language. But of course, no one could, you know, no one would seriously compare, for example, the condition of Uyghurs in China to the condition of like, Italian so-called patriots being attacked by the cosmopolitan left. Uh, but that is indeed the language they draw on. So I think what's also very kind of postmodern about it is it draws on this extremely um, violent and warlike register, indeed, that we the Italians are victims of genocide. Yet at the same time, the forms of political action chosen by Fratelli d'Italia are mainly you know, electoral and so on. But of course, it, it shouldn't be uh, imagined that this doesn't lead to real world violence. It does. You know, there have been murders in Italy by neo-fascist militants of you know more or less randomly attacking black people in the street. Uh, murders by members of, for example, Casa Pound, uh, a fascist group, which the current president of the Senate, you know, attends its summer school and says he wants to legitimize them. Uh, there was a terrorist attack during the 2018 uh, election campaign in uh, Macerata, where a former Lega candidate uh, shot uh, basically random um African immigrants in the street. And then uh, Milani went, you know, there's a big protest by anti-fascists in response. And Milani goes on TV and says, oh, you know, why can't we talk about ethnic substitution? You're only ever allowing me to talk about fascism. So I think these ideas, you know, it, it, it's, although of course, in general, my argument is indeed that Fratelli d'Italia's you know, is acting in a period of like less social violence and conflict and so on. It shouldn't be, I, I, I don't accept the idea that uh, this is all just rhetoric or sort of rabble rousing at election time because it really does have material consequences, uh, both of course violence, but also the fact that uh, immigrants, children born in uh, Italy aren't uh, entitled to citizenship. So it does have real uh, material consequences. But yeah, I think it's the, the basic thing of this this kind of eternal uh, victim status. I mean, in that sense, you know, compared to historical fascism, which of course also drew on this idea of civilizational threat for sure, but also had this like big expansive 
project. And I think that that's the thing that uh, Fratelli d'Italia certainly seem to lack. Yeah, you you remind me of a section from Robert Paxton's book, uh, The Anatomy of Fascism. <clears throat> he talks about the mobilizing passions of fascism. And one of them is uh, the belief that one's group is a victim, a sentiment that justifies any action without legal or moral limits against its enemies, both internal and external. Um, and it certainly seems like at least a little bit of that sort of flavor uh, going around. Um, one last question for you, if you have time. Um, towards the end of the book, you kind of talk about the future a bit. Um, you know, Maloney's been in power for six months now. Do you have a sense for where this is going? You know, like on the one hand, like it doesn't seem plausible to me she's going to be able to fix like any of the economic problems, more, uh, nor, you know, restore the Italian birth rate to whatever. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you, you see that like, it see, I think it's fair to say European countries struggle with like incorporating immigrants a lot more than like the United States. And we're not all that great at it either. You know, Trump was a huge xenophobic anti-immigrant guy, but you know, that's the type of thing that takes, you know, decades or even centuries to sort of like figure out. And it's always a struggle. You know, we've gone back and forth and being more or less welcoming of immigrants. Um, and I think especially when you're talking about, you know, Italy sort of theoretically, at least as a, a ethno state, right? It's, you know, it's supposed to like set up with a particular nationality as a sort of like basic identity. Um, and that suggests, you know, with like immigrant pop, like constant refugee flows and attempted refugee flows that there's like a potential seam of electoral you know, uh, uh, power to be mined, uh, in terms of like mobilizing people around basically xenophobia as a distraction from like not being able to do anything about the European union. So where do you see this going? Hmm. I mean, I think one, uh, problem that government has is that it is drastically unable to realize the things it claims to be doing. So of course the birth rates thing, I think, tax credits and so on often have impact on the time uh, timing of when people choose to have children as of course with things like you know it being easier to move out of your parents house but i don't think that that's really going to have an overall or significant impact on the birth rate you know never mind the fact that you know even if they did boost birth rates you know the upstream impact on the labor market would be in like 20 years time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, um, but yeah. And also I think the, I mean, I think the other really striking thing though, is that they, uh, they have long pushed and the European union has in part taken up an idea of repressing migration by outsourcing it to North African regimes and Turkey. So the idea is that the democratic European countries don't really want to, you know, be seen getting their hands bloody. They pay Morocco and Libya and so on to, to control, to stop people trying to cross the Mediterranean. And this government, uh, or Maloney's election campaign even spoke of a naval blockade of the Mediterranean to stop boats trying to cross. What we've actually seen under her government is that the number of migrants has increased quite a lot. The number of people trying to cross the, uh, by, sea, at least across the Mediterranean, uh, by dinghies and so on. Uh, it's actually increased uh, by four times over since the equivalent period last year. Because the thing is, is that what drives people to migrate is not, uh, you know, some of the right-wing papers have headlines like, oh yeah, well now they know Maloney's in charge, they won't even try and come. 
But of course, you know, we've had things like even, even apart from the war in Ukraine and Russia and it's also the Russian war in Ukraine and its impact on the food supply in the Middle East and so on. We've also had events like the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, which displaced many hundreds of thousands of people. Um, the government has tried to sort of um, blame Russia and say the Wagner group is sending people across the Mediterranean in boats, but I don't think that that will succeed in convincing many people because it's obviously false. So, or, or, or rather, even insofar as the Wagner group is an organizer of the, of the, uh, trade in, um, in, uh, or, or sort of selling people places on boats, it's a small, uh, uh, element in the overall dynamic. So I think, um, Fratelli d'Italia is not going to be able to produce, uh, any, uh, important results other than some spectacular acts of repression. Uh, as we've seen already, some cases where there were migrant boats that, that sank and where the people died and the government sort of did a very like uh, big display of its callousness in order to, to say, well, you know, they shouldn't have tried to come. Um, but I mean, I think the, the overall, I mean, in a, in a sort of longer term perspective, I think that there is a, shift beginning to take place in Italian society in the sense you you literally uh, see and perceive more children of immigrant background as this, as they're called um you know going to school it becoming more sort of socially normalized uh, if you look for people for for Italy to start to become a more multi ethnic society uh, of course even before the war in uh, in Ukraine the biggest single immigrant group to Italy were Ukrainians uh, already, and of course you know, Romanians, Albanians, and so on. Uh, probably more important in their in their numbers than immigrants from from Africa or or the Middle East uh, or Bangladesh, another important uh, source, uh, sort of a departure country. But I think over time we will see it change, and I think it's interesting to look at the social attitudes because, of course, I'm talking a lot about the right and you know, why they're winning and how they galvanise their base, or at least what the the party leaders think. It's hardly as if most Italians agree with the government on these issues, or that that's necessarily the case. Let's say, um, you know, we we often kind of hear this a reproach against the left, like, well, how can you disagree with the democratic will of the Italian people? And Milani is so popular, but firstly, she got twenty six percent of the vote in a vote with sixty four percent turnout, which isn't all that much. Uh, and, you know, even overall sort of approval numbers for the government are already more negative than positive. Um, there was a poll this week after this minister, her brother-in-law, um, said that, you know, we shouldn't give in to ethnic substitution. So this poll found that 30% of Italians, uh, actively believe in great replacement theory and in particular the idea that there's a conspiracy, that there's a elite groups who are orchestrating it. Another 16% think that there isn't a conspiracy, but the ethnic replacement is happening anyway, and it's negative. Uh, but that still leaves you with the solid half of Italians who basically say that multiculturalism is either fine or a positively good thing. If we look again at an issue like uh, LGBT couples adopting, uh, a large majority of Italians are in favour, and even a third of Fratelli d'Italia's own voters uh, say that they're, you know, they're, they accept that so even though uh the uh political discourse 
is very to the right on these issues is very dominated by this like ethnocentric and very um you know we're defending civilization kind of uh, idea i think the social attitudes have uh, changed quite a lot uh and that there are sort of um you know important uh, if limited breakthroughs uh, in terms of uh, anti-racism in uh, italian public life uh, and as as indeed uh, people from ethnic minorities not just being seen as immigrants uh, but rather as uh, italians so i think there is you know in broad terms i think there is a there is a change going on and that the it's extremely unlikely that the government will be able to 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 seriously uh uh, delay or, or stop that, uh, but it certainly could have some very harmful uh, consequences for lots of uh, people. Yeah, well, kind of optimistic note there. I like that. There may be a question mm-hmm. of mobilizing the silent majority, as it were, of people <laughs> who are not super keen on like dumping, you know, penniless uh, refugees into the Mediterranean. Um, well, I think that's a good place to stop. Um, David Broder, the book is called Mussolini's Grandchildren. Um, oh, wait, is there a subtitle? Fascism in Contemporary Italy. There we go. Um, Ryan always forgets the subtitle. This is, I this do, is true. yep. Just forgot to write it down. But anyway, thanks for coming on the show. We'll link to your book in the description. Um, and thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode. Well, thanks for having me on.